0: Good morning. I think I drew the short straw for the longest sermon passage in existence. So from Mark 7, uh, verses 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The word of the Lord.
1: So this passage this morning is round two uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you remember a few chapters ago, the Pharisees came up from Jerusalem to see what all the fuss was about with Jesus, and that's when they said that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And so today, they're back, ready for a rematch, trying to discredit Jesus and his ministry. And this passage uh, is challenging for a number of reasons. The first is, if you notice, that uh, the vocabulary that's used in this passage is very distant from our day and age. So it uses words like defiled, unwashed. It uses clean and unclean hands. Jesus uses a word uh, called Corban. And so all of these words aren't really part of our vocabulary. And so we have to understand at least a little bit of what they mean. But secondly, this passage deals with issues that are deeply, deeply deeply rooted in the complexity of Jewish religion and culture. In fact, the things that Jesus says in this passage are so controversial that it actually takes decades for the church to work out what he says in this passage. Jesus has just confronted 2,000 years of Jewish tradition and religion and history. And so, it's a passage in which it's easy to get lost in the weeds, It's also a passage that's easy to skip over and just jump to the next miracle, but we should actually look at this passage because it is important. Because this uh, this section here contains Jesus's harshest criticism in the entire Gospel of Mark. And secondly, for all of its complexity in this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, it actually still shows us one of the simplest, easiest traps. To fall into. It's the trap of external religion. It's the trap of legalism. It's the trap of being caught in a faith where we just simply go through the motions, where there's outward conformity, everything looks fine, but on the inside there's just inner discontent. That's what we fight even now, right? As we think about what the week holds. We come to worship but our attention is elsewhere. We're here. Why? Because we can give the appearance of being godly. External religion gives the appearance of caring about the things of God, being concerned for what God is concerned about, but inside, there's nothing but contempt for what God actually is concerned about. It's very deceptive. External religion is the lie that says as long as you do these things on the outside, or don't do these things on the outside, then on the inside, you are completely okay. And so perhaps one of the best examples, I think one of the most vivid examples that the scriptures give, gives about what this looks like is from Amos 8, where God literally is prosecuting Israel for the way they've gone about religion and said, he, he says, yeah, you stop working on the Sabbath day, but you can't wait for it to be over because you're so ready to start making money again. All your religion is one big Show. And God calls him out. And it's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. But we need to remember, too, that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience when he writes the Gospel of Mark. And so the reason that he includes this this passage amidst all of the things that he could have included is because this isn't just a problem for Jews. This is also a problem for those that claim to follow Jesus. External religion is a problem that we all run the risk of falling into. It's always there, and it's always uh, drawing us near, wanting us to participate in this external religion. Why? Because external religion at its heart is incredibly attractive, because it can give the appearance that everything is fine on the outside, and you don't ever, ever have to deal with your own heart. And everybody and everything around you can think, that you are just fine. So let's think about this passage from this perspective. As a professing Christian, for you, what is the most tragic thing that could happen to you? As a professing Christian, what's the most tragic thing that could happen to you? Perhaps there's room for debate as to what it is. But I think perhaps at the top is that in the end, you would think that you know Jesus and you would find out that you don't at all right, is to think this whole time that I know Jesus, and then you get to where you don't have any time left, and Jesus says to you what he says he'll say to many in Matthew 7, when he says many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at all that I've done for you, and Jesus says, depart from me. I don't even know who you are, and you don't know me. What a moment of tragedy, and it doesn't say that that's going to happen to a couple of people. It doesn't say that's going to happen to, you know, two or some. It says many. Why? Because external religion is a problem for all of us, and it's one in which we should take seriously. And so as we do this morning, we need to really consider, as we take a close look at this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, is try to understand first what is at the heart of the issue. What is the problem that's at the heart of the external religion of the Pharisees? So verse 2 is when they show up. And they say to G, Je- or they, it says that they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled and unwashed. And then verse five, uh, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But instead, they eat with defiled hands. Now, there's a lot more formality behind this than just simply the Pharisees pointing out, That the disciples didn't wash up for supper. There's a tremendous amount of formality behind what they're saying. So part of the Pharisees' worldview, very simply, is that they felt like the outside world, the world outside of them, was contaminated. It was corrupted. It was defiled. It was profaned by sin and evil. And so as you went about life and you encountered the world around you, as you touched and came into contact with the outside world, then you too became defiled just by virtue of being in this corrupt, defiled world. So you on the outside would become defiled. Why? Because you don't know who touched that railing before you. You know, you don't, you don't know who sat on that bench before you did. You don't know who owned that coin before it came into your possession. And so, If you are corrupted on the outside, whenever you would eat with unwashed hands, then you would corrupt the food. And then when you ate that corrupted food, you became unclean and defiled and corrupt yourself, which meant that you could not worship, and ultimately you were not fit to approach God. And so the way that the Pharisees dealt with this is they had a very particular ritualistic way of washing their hands so that they could remove that contamination from the outside world, and they wouldn't run the risk of being contaminated on the inside. And they did that every single time they ate. Now, some of you germaphobes are like, that's an amazing rule. You know, like maybe these Pharisees aren't so bad after all. Now, you have to think about the fact that when they talk about cleanness, it has nothing to do with germs. They're not talking about modern-day conceptions of bacteria. It's not about hygiene. It's about It's essentially referring to not allowing what is corrupt in the world to come inside of you and corrupt you as well. It's about distancing yourself from that which is profane and evil. So if you look at verses 3 and 4, it's in parentheses. And it's in parentheses for a couple of reasons. One, again, Mark is writing to a non-Jewish audience, and he's trying to explain to them what this meant and what some of these washings that the Pharisees would do in his explanation. But he includes it because if he didn't include an explanation, this whole passage would probably be very confusing to them. Why? It's because you don't actually find this law or requirement to wash hands before you eat anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't exist. It's not in the Torah, it's not in, you know, the the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, it doesn't exist in the scriptures. In fact, the only time that you see a command to wash hands before something happens to remove cleanness or uncleanness is the priests, before they would go in and offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. They'd wash their hands in the bronze basin. And so, begs the question, where did this law come from? Where did this law originate from? Well, it already says that it was actually from the oral tradition of the elders. The oral tradition that was handed down from the elders through the generations. So the Pharisees claimed that this oral tradition that they had, that really has a really long history, in the end, this oral tradition that they held to, they thought that it was a good thing. Sure, it's not in the Bible, but it helps us. Why? Why? Because the oral tradition forms a fence around all of those laws that are actually in the Scriptures. It forms a fence around the real law, the Torah of God. So it's a help to you. Why? Because if you don't break any of these laws that are in the oral tradition, then you don't ever have to worry about actually breaking the law that's in the Word of God. Right? So it's meant to protect. It's meant to keep you pure from breaking the law of God. Now, in the 200 years leading up to the life of Jesus, the oral tradition was kicked into overdrive. Why? Well, they were ruled, Israel was ruled by foreign powers. And they wanted to maintain their national identity and who they were. They wanted to remember God's laws, and so they adopted even more oral tradition and it became even more complex. And they wanted to remember. But then even deeper than that is they felt that if they were a righteous nation, they were obedient and did not break the law, then God would bless them. God would restore Israel again to being the most powerful nation on the planet if they did not break the law. God would be indebted to them, and he would be forced to bless them because of how righteous they were. But then by the time Jesus comes around, the oral tradition has absolutely nothing to do with the law of God. It has nothing to do with the priorities and the values of God that we actually find in the law that was given through Moses. Why? Well, what are they doing with their own people? They're dividing them. All the oral tradition did was produce an us versus them mentality. All it did was create insiders and outsiders And it was used to bully people and divide their own people. Because if you didn't follow what the oral tradition of the Pharisees were, even as a Jew, then you were unfit, you were unclean, and you could not approach God in worship. It simply became a stick by which they beat people. And even though they professed that it was all about what God cared about, it wasn't. Because the law was never about division. The law was never about creating insiders and outsiders. It's actually the opposite. Yes, the law has things in it in which Israel would be marked and distinct from the rest of the world, but what was the purpose of Israel? It was to be a blessing to the nations, not to separate yourself from them and keep them at arm's length. All of those boundary markers that marked out the people of God were to go out into the world so that the rest of the world could be introduced to this God. The rest of the world could come to know who this magnificent God is, but instead... The Pharisees had taken this oral tradition and they used it as a basis for their justification to hate their neighbor, to be elitist, to be judgmental against everything and everybody. And so you see in the New Testament why it says that they impose all of these extra laws on the people and they crush them. They crush them. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, he says, you impose all of these heavy burdens on the people. All you do all the time is just tell people how profane, how unclean they are in the name of God. You shut the kingdom in people's faces over and over again. So if you remember last week in the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus sees all of these people coming to him and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they're sheep without a shepherd. It's these guys that are running the show. These guys that are supposed to be leading them to God, and yet they're not. All they're doing is showing the people how distant they are from him and Jesus has compassion on him, which really gets us down to the central accusation of the Pharisees against Jesus because they're pointing out that his disciples are unclean and contaminated, which means two things. One, they're showing that Jesus is a fraud of a teacher because Jesus hasn't even taught them the traditions of the elders. But two, who was it that passed out all the food at the feeding of the 5,000? it was the disciples. So they're literally saying that Jesus in his ministry is perpetuating uncleanness throughout Israel, that he is actually through his ministry separating people from God. He is actually disqualifying people from approaching God through all that he is doing. Now, hopefully you could see why Jesus would have his harshest criticism in this moment. And he's very direct in verses six through eight. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. So he says, you're hypocrites, you're actors, you're pretenders. Oh, you care about the things of God so much, yet you actually, in your heart, you hate them. And your worship is in vain. Your worship is hollow and it's empty because it gives the appearance of caring about the things of God, yet deep in your heart, you could care less. And Jesus just gives a quick illustration of how they actually do this when he talks about Corban, right? Corban just simply means uh, dedicated. And so in the oral tradition, they would allow for something to be considered Corbin, which just means dedicated. So I could claim that my car is Corbin, it's dedicated to God. Or I could claim that my house is Corbin, it's dedicated to God. My, my personal wealth is Corbin, it's dedicated to God, right? So it would be devoted to the temple treasury. And Jesus uses an example of how the Pharisees would give the appearance of godliness and completely forsake godliness all at the same time with Corbin. Why? Because part of the law in the scriptures was that you would honor your father and your mother. And part of honoring your father and your mother was actually taking care of them in their old age. It was providing for them and loving them sacrificially all the way through the end of their life. But what happened is, is that the oral tradition of the Pharisees that they would allow, is it became something where somebody could go, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. But everything that I was going to be giving to you, you know what? It's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. I'm not going to be able to take care of you. So I can keep all that money in my bank account and it can gain interest and I can enjoy the fruits of it during my lifetime and then just dedicate it at the end of my life whenever I die in my will. But you guys are going to have to figure out something else, right? I care about devoting myself to God so much that I'm going to completely break this commandment, right? It is a complete... And utter hypocrisy. The whole thing falls apart, and Jesus says, "In many such things you do. That's just one of many that the Pharisees do. It's the appearance of godliness. And so what is at the heart of the problem of their legalism and their external religion? It's that they have traded the authority of God for the authority of men. And the authority of men will always give the appearance of, of caring about the things of God, yet in the end have nothing to do with them. That's legalism. Oh, you got to do this because it's really about this is what God really cares about. That's external religion. You really need to do this because it gives the appearance of godliness and yet it keeps God at arm's length. And the truth is, this happens in the church all the time. All the time. It's so easy to do, to give the appearance of godliness. Let's have fun for a second, and I'll give you a couple of these examples from my past. One, if you were raised in the 80s and the 90s, uh, you know you were told, most likely, that you were not really serious about following Jesus until you threw away all those secular CDs, right? Like, you weren't really serious about Jesus until you brought those to the bonfire at youth night. You weren't really serious until you smashed, you couldn't just throw them away, you had to smash them right? You had to, you know, leave no bridge. Burn all your bridges back to that, right? Never, heaven forbid that your Aerosmith, you know, albums are in the closet, and you don't tell anybody about those. You just kind of do the ones that you don't listen to anymore, right? But as long as you really do that, why? Because KISS, KISS stands for nights in Satan's service. ACDC, that stands for Antichrist, devil's child, right? You're going to go to hell if you listen for those about to rock. We salute you, right? And you enjoy it. You can't do that. So as long as you stay away from those things and you give those things up, then you're okay on the inside. Another one 20 years ago was Harry Potter, right? So if you read Harry Potter, you are literally inviting Satan to live inside of your heart, okay? You're going to get a Ouija board. It's the gateway to the occult and all of these things that what? It's going to corrupt you. You can't read about the dark lord Voldemort, Instead, come read about the Dark Lord Sauron in The Lord of the Rings, and that's so much better, okay? And you can, you can enjoy that. It has nothing to do with the values of God, except what? If you do it, then you really care about God. And then there's one, one of my favorites, is I knew a couple one time where the husband went to the doctor, right? And the doctor said, look, you've got some early heart conditions with some high cholesterol, I'm not going to prescribe you any medicine. Let's see if we can do, deal with it in a more simple way. Go home, get some wine, and just drink wine, a little some wine every night, and that will probably help with the cholesterol, and we'll check and see if it gets any better over time. So he goes home, and the, the wife said, I don't feel comfortable with that. If you, if you go and get wine, that's fine, but you need to go to another town if you're going to get it because you don't want people to see you at the grocery store. And as they talked about it, Why? what's that going to do to your witness, right? Because people all the time come up to you in the grocery store and say, I noticed that there's no alcohol in your shopping cart. Please tell me of this hope that you have. Please tell me of the joy that's flowing out of you, right? But the truth is, it's not actually about bearing witness. It's not about giving a testimony of the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus. Why? That person doesn't have any non-Christians in their home, A person's not going out, passionate about bearing witness to their community. What's it about? It's about image. It's about not being seen by certain people. But it gives the appearance of godliness. I joke with my family back home, what's a Baptist? A Baptist is somebody who puts their beer in the back of the fridge, right? You hide it. And we Presbyterians do the same thing. Where we want to do it, we go with licentiousness. We're free because how licentious we can be, perhaps. How we're not weighed down by these extra laws and burdens because we believe in a gospel of grace that can just as easily become licentious. There's all sorts of ways in which we have these extra rules. What's your children's education? That's how much you value God in their life. How many sports are they involved in? What's your voting record? Because now, isn't that a part of your faith? whether or not you're in or out, is how you vote in your politics. It's not about trying to do the best you can in the midst of complex problems. It's just simply a determination of your eternal destination. Or a law about whether or not you've been divorced, whether or not your children are walking with the Lord as they've moved out of your house. These are all things about which we think that they just give the appearance about caring about the things of God, yet in the end, they don't care about anything whatsoever that God cares about because they're used to divide. They are used to say, there's you and there's me. It just gives an us versus them mentality, and it just creates insiders and outsiders. It just forms the basis by which we judge others, just like the Pharisees because it's not really about introducing people to God and his grace and mercy. It's about showing people how far away they really are from him, right? Because we think in external religious terms, as long as we don't do this on the outside, then we're okay on the inside. I mean, the history of evangelical morality has been what? Garbage in, garbage out, right? Jesus says the complete opposite in this passage. And that's what we've been fed, Garbage in, garbage out. Your standing is based on what you are surrounded by. It has nothing to do with what's going on in here that would draw you to those things. Instead, as long as you don't do all of that or you do these certain things, you're okay. And Jesus says, that is the lie. It's so easy to live by a set of rules that give the appearance of godliness and yet have nothing to do with it at the same time. So really, lastly, two things. How can we be a church that's on guard against doing that, those types of things? Because all of those things are misleading away from God. How can we be a church that does not worship in vain and seeks to worship in truth and in purity? Well, I think that part of it, the first thing is we have to be willing to see our own hypocrisy. What's the difference between a Pharisee and a disciple? Well, Pharisees don't want to hear anything of it, and disciples are willing to see the parts of their heart that are hypocritical. They're willing to hear about the parts of their heart that, sure, yeah, give the appearance of godliness, yet in the end are distant from God. And so what's our hypocrisy? Are we willing to see it? I think if we, if we considered ourselves for a second and where we're at in modern day, you know, American culture, I think we have to recognize what is creeping into the church, right? And it's individualism. So it's not so much that we claim the traditions of men in the past. We claim those traditions and say that's what we're a part of. Why? Because culturally, we're breaking away from all of that. Culturally, we're separating ourselves and kind of carving a new role. And so who's the real determiner of truth and authority? It's the individual. It's me who decides what's right for me. It's me who decides everything from how I use my time all the way to my gender. I mean, we, we are literally at the point where we're such a post postmodern culture that the individual is the authority. The individual will decide what is true. And so that has worked its way into the church, has it not? So it's no longer the traditions of men. It's now the tradition of me. I will establish my own set of laws. I will establish what's right and true and good and decide how much I give of myself. So think about worship, Right? and attendance going down. Why? Because worship is negotiable. It's not about what God says when his people come together. It's just something I can do whenever it works for me. What about community? Well, we like community, but at the same time, I don't want to engage in the type of community that God would have me, where we bear one another's burdens. We care deeply for one another. Instead, those things make me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to do them. We think about giving, our generosity, time, and energy, It's not about what God says in his authority. Instead, I will just simply decide what is good for me and decide how much to give. And in the end, all we're going to do is come up with a set of laws that we feel are good for us and we just kind of go through the motions. There's no sincerity. There's no movement towards Jesus because the heart is elsewhere. Again, what is Jesus doing? He's giving his harshest criticism, which means we have to take it seriously. We have to take seriously the warning for us that we can't strip the authority of God in our lives and then gather for worship and say, God, you are so amazing. God, you are so wonderful. Right? It's like a married couple that lives apart all week long in separate homes, separate houses, yet on Sunday morning, they show up, sit together, and they pretend like they're the happy couple. Isn't it so easy to fall into that trap? And lastly, is that we have to be willing to recognize the result of this kind of religion. What's the real result of getting in this go with the flow, just kind of external religion? There's a few things that you value that are important, and as long as you don't do these things, then we're okay, or as long as you do this stuff, you're okay, and all of that. What's the real result? What's literally what's happening right in front of us in this passage with the Pharisees? Just think about this. There's a legend about Charlie Chaplin where he came across a county fair, and they were having a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. He's Charlie Chaplin. What's he do? Well, he joins the contest, of course, right? So he gives his best Charlie Chaplin impersonation, because he's Charlie Chaplin, and he dresses up, does the whole spiel and the whole bit, and he gets third, (laughs) right? And this is the exact story of the Pharisees, that for all of their complexity all of their self-professed devotion to God, they don't even recognize the real thing when they see it. They care about God so much, yet when they see it in front of them, they miss it. And it passes them right by. That's the real irony of this passage, and it's the real irony of legalism and external religion, is that it's the profession that you know God, and that you will miss him every single time. We miss him in worship. Why? Because it's just considered and inconvenience. We miss him in community because those people make me uncomfortable. We miss him in service. Why? Because somebody else will do it. We miss him in generosity. We miss him in all those moments in which he says, come, let me determine what is good for you. And we say, no, I'm going to do something else. We miss him because he promises to meet us in those things. And to miss Jesus is clearly 100% to miss joy. Because at the end of that passage in Isaiah that Jesus quotes, it tells about something else that will happen. Is that those that submit to the Holy One, they will obtain fresh joy. They will obtain an abundance of joy whenever they submit to this king. And in verses 20 through 21, Jesus tells us what the real problem is. It's not out there in all of this. It's in here. And he tells us that why. Why? And why is joy available to us? Because Jesus cares about real problems. He wants to address real issues in our lives and draw us closer to him so that we can have transformation in those areas. And so as we think about the commandments of Jesus, what do they do? They draw those things to the surface. They draw our reluctance, our frustration, the fact that we don't like this or like that, and that gives us something to take to Jesus. And say, deal with this. Wash me clean. It's to to confess and to recognize the ways that we don't like his authority, the ways that we want to do things our own way, and we can be made new and be made clean. And yet it's only whenever we adopt his authority in our lives that we will have that opportunity to experience joy. And it's easy to not do that because we want to treat Jesus like he's just another Pharisee. All he does is lay heavy burdens on us, All he does is give us things to do that don't really bring real life and real transformation. Yet in the entire gospel of Mark, what have we seen thus far? He cares really deeply about you finding rest and taking a break and finding him in the midst of that rest. He cares about you finding him in the midst of the storm. He cares about you trusting in him for your satisfaction. He cares about removing all of the empty laws that draw you away so that you can find him. Why? Because he wants you to find him. Now, does any of that sound like a king that just lays pointless burdens upon us? Instead, might we all find joy by recognizing that his authority is freedom because he's a king like no other. Let's draw an eardrum at the table this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for... We thank you for your harsh words that would challenge us and awaken us to any ways that we... We might think that we're okay. We all can be, uh, we all can fall so easily into that trap of deciding what's best and what's good. And yet you invite us to lay your kingship over our lives and define life, define new hope, new joy, and new satisfaction. We need your grace and your mercy to do this. We need you to protect our hearts from the judgmentalism of external rules that claim godliness and yet know nothing of it. We ask you to protect us from legalism and that instead we would find the obedience that leads to joy because it leads to you. Would you meet us at your table this morning and strengthen us for the work that lies ahead. We ask all this in your precious name and everybody said amen.